0: Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain and identifies himself. We must not ask God to
1: change
0: his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter, when he says that we were chosen by God the Father. It is 2021,
2: and this marks the centenary of the birth of John Stott in central London, He holds a unique place in 20th century church history, not just because of his impact on the British church, but because of his impact on the global church. So throughout the year, we will meet a broad range of people from across the world, both women and men who knew him and worked closely with him, as well as those who never met him, but were nevertheless shaped by his preaching and writing. My name is Mark Mennell, and I hope you will join me as we explore inspiration, challenges, and insights from the life of Uncle John.
1: Good. Okay, so am I moving over there? No, 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 no. no. because it's all Bluetooth.
2: No. Ah, very good. So actually, we have the technology.
1: Yes, that's good. So, but but is, is the needle moving? Am I registering? It is. Oh, yeah,
2: good. Yeah, and it seems quite excited. The voice you just heard is that of Greg Johnson a Presbyterian minister based in St. Louis in the United States. He's been involved in Christian ministry for many years, but on top of all the regular challenges that brings, not least because he's a single man ministering in a church culture almost uniformly led by married men, Greg is what some describe as a celibate gay man. Now that by itself raises all kinds of red flags for people, and the terminology is highly fraught. with. Almost every label seeming to generate as much hurt as it does understanding. Greg writes in his new book, Still Time to Care, that he has friends who settle for the term same-sex attracted, while others would say they are gay Christians, and still others queer Christians. Now, if pushed, he would probably settle for same-sex attracted Christian, but sees the problems that some have with that too. Now, we'll come to that whole debate in due course. But for Greg, as a young man, John Stott had a huge impact. Here was Uncle John, someone who lived wholeheartedly for Christ and was committed to uh, biblical orthodoxy. He was someone whose sexuality was sometimes speculated about by skeptics because of his singleness, but was committed to celibacy and ministry. Stott was also a courageous leader in calling the church to care for minorities, including sexual minorities. And because Stott's teaching and writing is such a central element of Greg's new book, I really wanted to talk with him about it. Because it seems to me that if the Church had listened to the combined messages of John Stott and C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham and Francis Schaeffer, the four key uh, writers that Greg engages with in his book, then the cultural transatlantic landscape would be far less acrimonious than it has become. But there were other forces at work and those voices were drowned out, as we will see. But I began by asking how the relationship between American Christianity and the UK's uh, version of it fits with his research, with what was going on at the time.
1: Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the the first, kind of looking historically at at conservative Protestant thought about homosexuality and about gay people. You know, you go back and you, you read uh, C.S. Lewis had a lot to say on it in his letters. Uh, you a little bit elsewhere for American evangelicals. C.S. Lewis is their favorite evangelical theologian, I even though he never identified as evangelical. <laughs> yeah, and then you know you have Billy Graham really speaking into it, offering a voice of compassion and understanding and empathy, and even advocating for gay people when they mm-hmm. got in trouble. Advocating in 1975 for the ordination of 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 non-practicing homosexuals. And of course, Billy Graham had a big role in evangelicalism in in the UK. Absolutely. And, uh, And yet then you've got John Stott, who more than any other took those decades of Christian thought about sexuality. And in 1978, 79 did a series of sermons, issues facing Britain today. And the last of those was homosexuality that then became a book. And I don't think we can overestimate the degree to which American evangelicals in the last half of the 20th century looked to evangelical Anglicans in the UK for leadership. UK Anglicans sneezed and every campus minister in America caught cold. That's
2: extraordinary, uh, and particularly that they're Anglican as well.
1: Yeah, but, but you know, just the, the the fascination with British scholarship. You know, you have, you know, John Winham, you have, you know, all, all of these figures. Tyndale the
2: House in Cambridge, I guess, was part of that. Yeah, that
1: would have been the heart. And, and so you have all of these evangelicals looking to Stott as sort of ceremonial figurehead of the evangelical Anglicans. And so when Stott wrote and taught about homosexuality, it had a big impact in the U.S. in some circles. What happened at the same time, though, is by the late 1970s, Stott was kind of knitting together this paradigm of care, that you don't really cure homosexuality. You care and support people in finding fellowship in the church and learning to grow in holiness and and having the church as their family. John Stott, I mean, he said that, he said, at the heart of the human condition is this deep natural hunger for mutual love, a search for identity, and a longing for completeness. He said, if gay people cannot find these in the local church family, we have no business to go on using that expression. That's astonishing.
2: That's astonishing. So what year, that was the 78th? That, that
1: would have been, well, that's the, the, the most recent edition of his. Oh, so that of his, ends up in the book. Of, yeah, it ends up in the book, and then in his uh, same-sex partnership book that's really that same chapter mm-hmm. from the issues book and so that's very early and yet this paradigm of care which allowed no compromise biblically. Part of the beauty of how he dealt with sexuality, homosexuality in particular, is is his inductive approach. He went through and he looked at Genesis 2 and that sets the paradigm for what sexuality is supposed to be and then he looks at every passage in the New Testament, the Old Testament, and and draws conclusions from that. And yet he does it with an incredible sensitivity mm. and a nuance and a care. He he affirmed, 40 years ago, he affirmed that homosexual partnerships, sexual partnerships can be driven by love. Mm. He critiqued And that them. was radical. That was radical. He was affirming that something that's sinful what, could be motivated by genuine heartfelt love. Mm. And yet he pushed back and said, however, that the, the, the greatest love for a Christian is to want to see somebody thrive in Jesus, and that's in obedience to God's kingdom. And so love alone is insufficient. It's got to be Christian love driving, and a Christian love would desexualize any kind of relationship like that because you, the person that you think you love, you want most of all that they would know the Lord and walk in obedience. And so, uh, but he, he supported church discipline for homosexual practice just as he did for heterosexual sin. Right. He had the same standard. A lot of churches today are backing off from that. But you know, he stressed that when dealing with sexuality and 40 years ago, he said that homosexuality was the most explosive topic of the day. The last four decades haven't made it any less explosive, uh, particularly I mean, in fact, the he US. probably underestimated he, it. <laughs> I think he probably <laughs> underestimated it. But you know, he talked about how um, the topic requires, he said, an unusual degree of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. He said that in creating sexual beings, God placed sex close to the center of our personality, and so you can't stereotype or stigmatize. You know, we have no liberty, he said, to dehumanize someone on account of their sexual orientation or their sexual practice, that these are people to be loved and for the Christian to be really supported and brought into the church as their primary family.
2: Now, I, w- I want to come back to some of that, but there was a f- there's a fourth in your book, which is Francis Schaeffer. So you have two in in britain and two yes in the states yes and all four very different men yeah and with actually very different ministries but what i hadn't quite sort of clicked and, and reading your stuff is fascinating to see that the four have a sort of complementary role to build yes. something very constructive and beautiful even
1: yeah you know it's uh it was interesting you know when um when Time Magazine had its list of hundred most influential people, John Stott was in there, and I believe Billy Graham was the one who did his he did write-up. The birth, yeah, um, you know they had they had worked together with uh, Lausanne and all sorts of things, global evangelization, being gospel-centered. They were both trying to push back against a kind of rigid, hardened, antagonistic fundamentalism to cast a positive vision uh, of Christianity. And of course, with Graham, that was primarily through evangelistic crusades. With Stott, it was largely through his mind, through his writing, and uh, through the role he had in in helping Christians on both sides of the Atlantic think through some very complex cultural issues. Um, not everybody was doing that, yeah. and and Schaefer was was fascinating as well um, because you know he's he's also uh, it's been said of him that he was probably had a bigger impact on the evangelical mind in North America than any other figure. And if you poll Christians with PhDs who of a certain age, they all were powerfully influenced by, by Francis Schaeffer. In terms of them going into academia. Yeah, into academia and thinking things through Christianly. And they also had a certain ethos. You know, there was a point where Francis Schaeffer, is the first time I believe that he met Jerry Falwell, the founder of The Moral Majority. Towards the end of
2: the 1970s, various American church leaders were growing concerned with what they saw as the growing breakdown of traditional social values, perhaps in large part as a sort of consequence of uh, the revolutions that were going on in society in the 60s. One of the most influential voices at this time was Jerry Falwell Sr., and he founded a group called the Moral Majority that was a key player in what became known as the so-called New Christian Right And so naturally
1: his name came up in conversation. Falwell asked asked, uh, Schaefer, well, what do you think about homosexuals? And Schaefer did what Schaefer always does. He he gave a very nuanced, guarded answer. He said, well, you know, it's a very complex issue. And with absolutely no humor, Falwell looked at him and said, if I had a dog that did what those people do, I'd put a bullet in it. (laughs) And it was interesting because on the way out, Schaefer turned to his son Frankie and said, "That man is disgusting. Oh, boy. You know, there's, right. there's a, you know, he had, a, he, he, he emphasized compassion for mm. sinners. You know, LeBrie was a haven mm. for gay men and for lesbians who are trying to figure out what they actually believe about Jesus, mm. and, and there was never pressure to change. There was never, you know, Schaefer." stressed that for those who are exclusively attracted to the same sex it is very unlikely to ever change and it probably means a call to celibacy and he said we can weep with them over yeah. that you know it just had a huge heart yeah. and hospitality that you know swiss libri yeah. and and yet he did have disgust but he saved the disgust for religious leaders who talked about killing gay people that's just
2: i mean that is is brilliant isn't it it, it reminds me of um um, you know, Paul with the the circumcision party and the Judaizers, he calls them the dogs, not the ones who who sort of um, are relaxed and take it easy about whether or not to be circumcised. It's a complete subversion. It's the same sort of thing in a way, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it's it's and you know there was a there was a point where um, Billy Graham, his first comments about gay people that we have are recorded in a 1964 White House phone log that's still um, held in the archives at the University of Virginia. Uh, you can listen to it online, but it was in 1964, about four weeks before the presidential election. Is that with Johnson? Yes, Lyndon Johnson. LBJ was, was running for for a new term, and, uh, and it was right before the election, and his right-hand man, Walter Jenkins, uh-huh. uh, was caught in a YMCA men's room having sex with another man. And at first, the media hushed it up until they found out that 10 years earlier, he had been arrested in the same restroom doing the same thing. And it blew up all over Washington. Uh, his opponent, Republican Barry Goldwater, mm. had, uh, had had um, bumper stickers printed that said, all the way with LBJ, but don't go near the YMCA. You know, oh, that's outrageous. And, and so, oh. of course... Jenkins immediately, I mean he was a Catholic guy with ten kids uh who had converted to Catholicism in order to marry this girl, and and it had been a secret he had never told anybody, and he immediately resigned. But a couple of days later, um Billy Graham called the White House. This is the man who is the pastor to presidents. He asked to talk to the president, he talks to LBJ, they small talk for a little bit, and then and then he says, I want to talk to you about Walter Jenkins. Uh and he says, I, too, am a sinner just like him. I know what's in the heart of man. We're no different. And the way Jesus deals with sinners is he, he has compassion and he has mercy. And I hope you'll have compassion and mercy on Walter Jenkins. And if you do talk to him, please give him my love oh and my support. Goodness. It was a beautiful exchange. And there is this history of conservative, Christian, Protestant discourse about sexuality and about gay people. That you see, um, I mean, gosh, uh, Stott actually in his his work he quotes um, Richard Lovelace uh-huh. uh, in in who in 1978 he had written a book called Homosexuality in the Church and uh, Richard Lovelace was Gordon Conwell Seminary uh, prof. Presbyterian churchmen his 1979 dynamics of spiritual mm. life would be a, have a huge impact mm-hmm. on all sorts of pastors and but the previous year he wrote this book on homosexuality and it came with endorsements from you know Christianity Today editor Ken Cancer, Elizabeth Elliot, Chuck Colson, Harold Ockingay, Carl F.H. Henry. These are the cream of the crop mm-hmm. of transatlantic evangelicalism and in it Lovelace argued for what he called a double repentance in which the gay Christian in our pew, and that's the term that he used, the gay Christian in our pews repent of the actual homosexual lifestyle and the church repents of its homophobia. Wow. And he uses Stott, that word. Yeah, yes. And uh, and Stott, uh, um, Stott actually then quotes part of this passage in his own book on, on, um, on the chapter on homosexuality. It's really fascinating because he says... Uh, uh, First, it would require professing Christians who are gay to have the courage both to avow or acknowledge their orientation openly and obey the Bible's clear injunction to turn away from the active homosexual lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Second, it would require the church to accept, honor, and nurture non-practicing gay believers in its membership and ordain these to positions of leadership for ministry He continues, this is Lovelace, the church's sponsorship of openly avowed but repentant homosexuals in leadership positions would be a profound witness to the world concerning the power of the gospel to free the church from homophobia and the homosexual from guilt and bondage. This is 45 years ago, Hmm. 43 years ago. You know, it was fascinating. John Stott in 1980 gathered together a kind of a colloquium of evangelical Anglicans uh, specifically to figure out what the evangelical Anglican response to homosexuality needed to be and had all sorts of people there there was Elizabeth Moberly who was pioneering her kind of reparative therapy mm-hmm. approach you had Richard Winter there who mm-hmm. later was uh, you know U- yeah, UK Labrie and mm-hmm. then later for 30 years uh, professor of counseling at Covenant Seminary here in st. Louis um, it was sort of like a every just a, a, a think tank and and they got together and uh, they, um, they confessed their own, in, the, in their actual like, like statement, they said, we repent of the crippling homophobia, it's in quotes, it was a new term, we repent of the crippling homophobia, which has colored the attitudes toward homosexual people of all too many of us, and we call our fellow Christians to similar repentance. Amen. What happened sadly after this is already in the late 1970s in the U.S., the, the ex-gay movement was being born and that was a movement that stressed not care but rather cure. Mm -hmm. That over the next over 40 years before it collapsed and died in 2013 with the closure of Exodus International Mm -hmm. really placed a very different uh, pressure on same-sex attracted people in the churches because it said that the goal is to change, you have to become heterosexual, that's the intention. All of your effort is, is toward that goal and the results were pretty terrible. Yeah. You know, I, I... There's carnage everywhere. It was just, yes, yeah, just a, it was a bloodbath, proverbially, um, mm. as you had so many lives that were just completely destroyed because you were putting people on a treadmill in which they weren't allowed to be honest. So you have all the, all the equivocation that came within the movement where people would say, well, I've come out of homosexuality and their hearer hears I'm now straight, but mm. what that actually means is they're, they're still gay, they're just not practicing. Mm. Or they say, you know, I, I no longer identify as a homosexual, even though by any any uh, uh standard definition of homosexuality they they are.
2: And that that sort of devastation leads to well, I think it was just the week I flew here going through the British Parliament a law to ban gay conversion therapy. Yeah. And and whether or not one knows if that's the right move, just to The fact that it's so central in public discourse in Britain, and I guess elsewhere, just shows people are well aware of what it's done. So-called conversion therapy has been controversial from the start. But the reason it's making headlines today is that many countries, including the UK, are considering legislation to make it illegal. There are all kinds of complications and ramifications from this, and I certainly don't have the insight nor expertise to be able to work through them all. I'm aware that many believers find themselves opposing the legislation while simultaneously rejecting the false premises and cruelties of this practice, and Greg naturally has a perspective and strong insight on this.
1: Yeah, it, it, the results were universally bad, mm. and uh, you know, you know, the last president of Exodus International, Alan Chambers, said in 2012 that 99.9 percent of their clients had never seen orientation change. Wow! And the 0.1 percent was one particular woman who he knew had been transformed, and she later phoned him up to say, "No, I'm still bisexual. I'm just committed to my husband." Um, I mean, it's just negligible. Isn't negligible. It? So, Greg, we have these
2: four, and yeah. in many ways, they seem like um, voices in the wilderness, or they're 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 really counterintuitive or countercultural. And just yeah. just paint us a picture of what the sort of general discourse of what people, um, you know, unthinkingly would would be saying and thinking
1: in the US, and probably still in the UK. You know, there was. There's a huge cultural bias against homosexuality. I mean, it was illegal in Britain.
2: Practice was illegal until
1: the 60s. 60s. And in the US, it was probably quite a bit later than that. I mean, the state of California in 1972 was still forcing lobotomies on gay men. Uh, the state prison at, at Toscadero was where they put all of their psych, psychological criminals. And, of course, homosexuality was still illegal. And so it was considered a psychological problem, causing one to commit a crime of homosexuality. And yes. uh, and they gave they gave repeat offenders the choice of either being lobotomized or being castrated. The Advocate magazine in 1972 called it Doc Al for Queers. And I think as Christians, we sat back and let this happen because we thought that that's a completely different category of sin. Yes. And I mean, that's the root... Yeah, we weren't bringing the welcome of Jesus to Mm -hmm. people. We thought we were better We Mm -hmm. thought we were among the righteous when our sins no different. I mean, I've never been sexually active You know, I I realized I was It was 1984 when I was 11 years old and I knew I was gay and didn't become a Christian for years later But um, I was never sexually active, but you know when I look at these stories These are still people exactly like me typically without Jesus Whose lives were destroyed? I mean, I mean, people were left crippled and un- unable to feed themselves from a lobotomy. That's just, wow! Um, yeah, um, churches weren't necessarily safer places. No so, you know, conf- you yeah. you do have what I call the evangelical elites. These these are people like you know like Schaefer, uh, you know like Lovelace, like uh, Stott, like like Graham, who were casting a very positive gospel vision. And you had a lot of college-educated, university-trained evangelicals who were reading Christianity today and and reading books by by Stott and by Schaefer, who who were beginning to pick up on this. Mm. But um, the ex-gay movement, when it came with its promise of cure, that seemed louder. Uh, that became louder, and already by the night. 19- early 1980s Christianity Today was even writing articles about it, you know, our premier kind of evangelical Mm -hmm. uh, journal.
2: We'll return to the conversation with Greg in a moment, but first let's hear from my old friend Trevor Pierce, who is that rare breed, a lifelong youth worker. We were colleagues uh, for a number of years together at All Souls Langham Place, and here he talks about two of Uncle John's books that have meant a huge amount to him. Issues Facing Christians Today and The Cross of
0: Christ. Two books that had the biggest impact on me in my Christian life that John Stott wrote. Well the first was The Cross of Christ. I remember reading it in my late teens and I was a young man who'd never had a university education. I was young but as I started to read it I had to work hard. But here was theology, deep theology, about the most important doctrine of the whole Christian life, the cross. That was given to me, not in a simple way, but in a way that was so clear. The clarity was just so helpful. And really the cross of Christ gave me the theology of the cross that, li- that stayed with me for well all my ministry. It laid a brilliant, brilliant foundation. The second book that made a huge impact on me was issues facing Christians today. Now, Again, what this book did was it took God's word and then it looked at issues that any young Christian knew were big in the world. Abortion, sexuality, race and racism. And then what he did was, you know, his whole thing of double listening, he did it so brilliantly where he showed me God's truth. And then he showed just how brilliantly that it spoke into the world that I was living in on all those issues and others so that I could, as a young Christian, walk with my head high, not because I was better than anyone, but because I had confidence that God spoke into those areas and that God's truth was, well, it was the answer to all these questions that the world was throwing up. It had answers to abortion. answers to sexuality and answers to race and racism and all the other issues that issues facing christians today had both those books for the foundation of my theology and my life were huge did you did you ever meet
2: john
1: stott i didn't i did not you were you were pastor
2: we overlapped for a few years and um we had the privilege of going to visit him in his retirement home and things, um, which was an amazing, yeah, it was a deep joy. Um, but it, I, I am interested, I think, in people who didn't meet him, but nevertheless found a friend and a mentor in him. I mean, is that beyond this specific issue? Would that have been true of you as well? Or? I, I
1: think the first Christian book I read was Basic Christianity. Ah. You know, that sold two million copies, yeah. which is pretty good for, for Christian books. Uh-huh. <laughs> well one can aspire <laughs> and he didn't make any money off of it it, it
2: all went to Langham so I yeah. guess to some extent I kind of have a job as a result <laughs> yeah you know
1: and, and Stott is an amazing amazing man also because because of his celibacy Right. for a lot of us you know as as Christians you know when, when you are same sex oriented and you become a Christian you know you have this, this thing thrust before you of yeah. celibacy and, and you can Try to see if you can develop some heterosexual functioning. That that sometimes happens where where somebody who's otherwise only attracted to the same sex can develop a sexual longing for one person, and right. it opens the door for marriage. Right. Um, that that does happen without being generalized to the same sex to the opposite sex right. generally. But um, but you know when that doesn't happen, you, you think okay, well the, the only time the church ever talks about celibacy. Within Protestantism is when talking about people who aren't straight, and and with Stott you've got somebody we don't know anything about what form sexual temptation might have taken, but here you've got a prominent Christian leader mm. choosing to be celibate because it doesn't feel right to marry when he prays about it. Yeah, and twice that is an example that I think we need because um, as my, my friend Peter Valk uh, says, you know the the real key to turning this discussion within churches is having straight people straight christians walking faithfully in celibacy in in obedience to jesus Mm. and saint paul in first corinthians 7 when we can see straight people there are also straight people who are following this calling then it doesn't seem like punishment
2: i just wonder whether do you think in this country, it's much less common. I think in the UK, whether it's because of some of the historic... I mean, you mentioned Simeon in the book and the old Oxbridge thing where if you were a fellow, yeah. you had to be celibate. Yeah. And I, I know of a number of um, people in ministry, including my age, people in ministry now who are single. Whereas in this country, the idea of being a pastor and single, you you, you won't even be put on, on a shortlist for a job, is that? Yeah,
1: one of my best friends uh, was single and... and- sent his resume into a church and it uh, went pretty high up the stack and they called him and said, hey, could you send us a picture of you and your family? And he says, well, I'm not married. And then they said, don't bother. You know, I, I think a lot of it is, is a homophobia, you know, fear of, of somebody who's not married. Are they gay? Are they safe? Often churches are looking for a two for one deal. Huh. Where yeah. oh we can get the pastor's wife and she can sing in the choir and she can work with children's ministry. Well, I think and, my wife would have a few things to say about that. You know, too. <laughs> I I think it would be reprehensible for a church to assume such a thing because they're not hiring the wife. It's mm. it's been a challenge. I mean, mm. I'm I I'm in the church I was in because they knew me. Yeah, they had known me for nine years before I was ordained. There are churches out there that are particularly interested in mm. you know celibate Christians who who are same sex attracted or gay or whatever term you want to use. The coasts, big cities, college towns, um, campus ministries. But but then I think there's a
2: there's the challenge from the other side, isn't there? Because I can imagine lots of people, including people I know who perhaps I was at university with, who are quite activist, um, sort of gay rights and all the rest. That getting to a point where they might even hear some of the things that. Schaefer and Stott and people were saying in the seventies. I mean, it's all. It feels like it's it's a done deal. It's game over, and and we're beyond that. So, so how do we begin to get the conversation a bit more
1: civil and just listening? Christians have to lead the way in that. You can't ask non Christians to lead the way, and and I think a lot of it is going to be in our words and our deeds. Mm-hmm. Are we really affirming the dignity of people? Are mm-hmm. we really loving people? No secular. Pr- person no gay person is going to buy biblical sexuality unless they fall head over heels in love with jesus right because it's and not it's
2: not it's not rules it's yeah,
1: yeah it's because yeah. What, what what will motivate me to you know not have sex and then not have sex again and then i'm i'm going to be 50 years old next year and i'm still a virgin you know what has motivated that is the fact that i know i have a father in heaven who loves me and jesus is my best friend and he's got my back and he's covered over all my shame and he's forgiven all my sin and i have family he's he's there for me and i have within my church a community of people who know me and love me uh you know there's one one friend of mine one brother where we've grabbed drinks together every thursday night for 15 or 20 years there's another elder in my church who he holds me accountable in kind of areas of pornography and things like that. He gets my Covenant Eyes report. We've met uh, for coffee, you know, most weeks for 20, 20 years. This next year, actually, mm. um, another family in my church that had has had me in their home hundreds of times. Mm. You know, I I don't have to ask to get a beer out of the refrigerator. I just mm. go grab it. I have refrigerator. It's right. stocked so, up for you. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's just you know, but, but I mean, uh, I, I, that's I, the church being the church,
2: uh, I, and that's just. That's a joy to hear. And we just long that that will be the reality everywhere. Yeah. But I imagine that you find yourself attacked from all sides and yeah. other people, you know, we have mutual friends and people who who really, it's like they just damn whatever they do because you've got people yeah. in the church who just think they've sold out or they're heretical or they're just, they're just not even worth talking about. And then people out there saying, because actually you represent something that is just so counterintuitive and, and impossible to process. Yeah, um, it, it, I, I would imagine it's a very lonely position to be in. Well,
1: there was there was a week in two thousand eighteen when the local LGBT activist newspaper called for protesting our church, and a right wing FM radio Christian celebrity called for protests. At our church on the and same day on the same day uh, and so I was just thinking this could get violent you know because these people hate each other and they all hate us um, wow. now neither of them showed up they were blowing off steam yeah I I have personally taken most of my hits from the fundamentalist right um, just mm. even though I typically identify as same-sex attracted the fact that I don't have a problem with people who call themselves gay if right. they just mean sexual orientation right that that to them is heresy and you know, halfway house for sin and all sorts of things. And because I'm not actively trying to become straight because I figure after 30 years, something would have shifted. And so I I'm, I'm accepting the fact that God has not healed me. They, they consider that to be compromise, um, mm-hmm. denying God's power to sanctify. Um, some of them look at the fact that, that I'm, uh, still attracted to people of the same sex and, and, I I consider, and I consider that, you know, that, that sexu- any time I feel sexual desire for someone other, that, other than a wife that I don't have, I understand that that's indwelling sin among right. everything else. And and that's to be mortified, not played with. But um, but they still think that just the fact that homosexuality is is called unnatural in Romans 1, therefore means that I should not be ordained because my sin is worse than everybody else's, even though I've never acted on mine um, so, so yeah, we get it from the right, very bad. Um, and, and this year has seen a lot of that come to a head and, and, Mm. uh, I have, I have survived (laughs) so far. Um, but, uh, but we also get it from the left. And I think a lot of it depends on, on the, the community that you're in. Um, you know, but, but our church, you know, we've, we've taken flack again from the right for this, but you know, we're known in, in our community as the church that used to practice reparative therapy because we had a ministry in our basement years ago that they weren't really doing reparative therapy, but they were doing ex game ministry. And so there are a lot of people in the community that were part of that, were burned. and Okay, so it's just... US, so we, we have this association, but we also own and run an arts venue that's free of charge to artists. And so, you know, we twice had, um, you know, a transgender theater company was looking for space to put on plays twice we let them use it we got we just got bulldozed on the internet every discernment blog but but what we were trying to do right or wrong was find a way to love people who know what we believe and one one of the artists afterwards was talking to our, our youth pastor because he served as bartender one night um, all the pastors served as bartenders mm. different nights. It was a way just to show them the love of Jesus. Wonderful. And uh, and one of the artists afterwards, she was like, she she talked to him for a long time. And, and what she said was, I don't understand why you're loving us like this, knowing what you believe. And he was able to explain love and the gospel. And mm. she left that meeting or that, that event uh, saying it was the first time she felt like a Christian had listened to her. Goodness me. Now, is that evangelism? Not really. That's that's trying to build some yeah. relationship of love whereby these transgender artists will know that it was Christians, mm. conservative Bible-believing Christians, who loved them and treated them with respect. And it wasn't just a setup for a gospel presentation. Mm. Yeah. Back to Stott, you know, he had an honesty that, conservative evangelicals in the U.S. often cannot hear. Mm. Um, You know, we've been spent 40 years saying, no, you can be cured of homosexuality if you want to be. You can become straight. God can change you. Um, You know, you can't identify as gay and be a Christian. Um, You know, that's building your identity on sin. Your your identity is in Christ, as if that deletes every other aspect of human identity. Um, But Stott said said this he said we may not blame people for what they are though we may for what they do in every discussion about homosexuality we must be rigorous in differentiating between being and doing that is between a person's identity and their activity their sexual preference and their sexual practice their constitution and their conduct you know here his categories Mm -hmm. for thinking about homosexual orientation are that it's part of your identity and it's a part of your constitution you know this is a this isn't mm. in your head mm. and I remember one one young lesbian girl who she just wanted someone to tell her that it wasn't all in her head mm. that it's real mm. and and her pastor couldn't do that mm. and that
2: that little paragraph is vintage clarity and Yes, winsomeness, of vintage stuff, isn't it? He
1: spent a lot of time at his desk to get well, that. He, this is it. You see, people think he <laughs> it, it was—he it, it
2: was just a natural, but he would spend hours refining and and. Um...
1: Don't interrupt him. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Yes. Um, Greg, this has been so helpful and um, and fascinating, and I think you know I'm going to finish the rest of the book in the next day or two. But I think there's there's so much in there that we need to to really grapple with and i just long for some of the sort of conversations just to get back onto an even keel i mean just like yeah. you're describing him and, and yeah. some of the politics just to be taken out of it um yeah, yeah i think that I, I really do think this is going to have a profoundly helpful impact well i pray yeah. that it does
1: when and in both the us and uk context with bands of conversion therapy coming it's yeah. it's It's important that we even know what conversion therapy really was and what it's not. And why it was such a problem. Because Mm. John Stott saying, you know, you shouldn't have sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is not conversion therapy. Right. You know. Um, And it's not necessarily
2: hate speech either, although it might be.
1: No. i I do not feel like I'm anybody's prisoner. Uh, Jesus I saw a field and I bought it and it's the best thing I ever did I I have no regrets Uh, that this man will tell you that um, celibacy with Jesus is better than a string of relationships without
2: it was so good to meet up with Greg for our conversation in person in st. Louis and I do believe that the key message of his book a time to care is crucial especially Because the sexuality debates have become so complex and heated we might not agree with everything he suggests in the book, I'm sure he'd never expect us to, but particularly where he appeals to us to heed the biblically prophetic call made by John Stott in the 1980s, we really do need to listen. This seems the truly Christian response to one of today's most fraught issues. So we come to our final segment, as usual, a point for prayer. Now, in some countries, the threat from COVID seems to be abating uh, because of the success of vaccinations, apart from anything else. And yet the news from other parts of the world seems to just escalate the horror. It's come very close to home in Langham. In my region, Europe, we've lost one of our most beloved and key friends to the disease, Cornelio Constantianu, in Romania. In India, friends are hearing the passing of brothers and sisters almost daily. While in Latin America, uh, several very good friends were hanging on to life by a thread just days ago. Thankfully, those in particular seem to be recovering, but we pray for the recovery of all those in the worldwide Langham family, especially. Just through all of this pandemic misery globally, somehow, great good would come that's all for this episode thanks so much for listening do subscribe where you get your podcasts and review and leave comments we have exciting conversations lined up for the coming week so please do tune in again but for now thank you to members of the Langham team who have helped in different ways to make this podcast happen but a huge and special thanks as ever to Vic Marseille for her dedicated work in editing and polishing the podcast only she knows the rawness of the raw material that she has to work with But until next time,
0: goodbye.